Hello, and welcome to part two of episode 28 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In the previous episode, we discussed design workflow, and in part two today, we'll continue the conversation by discussing responsive web design and the web as a medium in contrast to print design. All right, so uh, as I mentioned, I'm also uh, revamping my responsive web design class. I used to teach it as a front-end development class where students learned HTML and CSS and how to implement uh, basic vanilla JavaScript plugins. The problem with this approach was it didn't leave any time to discuss visual design with the students because it took all semester for students to get even a basic understanding of front-end development. Mm -hmm. And so then I flipped it and I tried teaching the course focusing on visual design using tools like Envision or just, you know, just last semester, Adobe XD. However, this had the inverse problem where they really couldn't critique or test their designs in a browser. It's sort of like, you know, um, students having, having students create a, a poster and they print it out, they put it on the wall um, and they can critique if their typography is really working as opposed to like, you know, staring at their tiny little um, laptop or vice versa with a business card. You know, it's huge on the screen, but it's small in real life. <laughs> so, um, so my I guess my first question is, how do the visual designers at Fine go about creating designs and then testing them in the browser to ensure that their, you know, their typography is appropriate, um, that their grids um, are responsive? Um, how do you handle that conundrum, I guess? <laughs> yeah, that is a tough one. Um, so the truth is that we really rely a lot on designers coming in with that knowledge because there is a very involved process here in terms of getting something from Photoshop into the browser. We are not a shop that um, starts out wireframing in the browser and developing content in the browser and then styling that and evolving it. We work very much from visual design to code. And as a result, um, we stay in design files for a very long time before they get translated into the browser. Um, we have a very um, regimented process for delivering our designs to the development team. Um, and so what I, I guess what I'm trying to say specifically in response to this question is, we have designers who already can envision how their design is going to translate to the browser and they've built up that experience by, you know, having smaller stakes projects that they themselves have, you know, seen translating from one medium to the other um, or have started out with a very painful experience where they were wrong. Um, but, but really we assume that a designer can think in Photoshop about how something is going to work in the browser. And that is, um, you know, even for highly skilled and, and very senior designers, 
a tricky scenario where we do get into um, these situations where you're in development and something that you had thought through in terms of the breakpoints, um, you know, something that you had thought through either in the grid or the way that the type was going to respond or whatever is actually working great at those breakpoints. But then there's all this stuff in between those breakpoints where you, you know, like Photoshop is not a good tool for thinking ahead to what's going to happen if you've designed at 768 and you've designed at 320, what's going to happen at 550? <laughs> You know, so you have to get really good at um, foreseeing all the gotchas of being like, wow, if I have a square image and I'm assuming that that image is going to stack at some point, it's going to be really tall once I get to that weird little moment where it's going from tablet to mobile. And there's going to be an awkward period where everything is going to look completely out of proportion. Um, and I should plan for that by designing my mobile solution a little bit differently. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's mm -hmm. a, a super advanced series of, um, anticipatory design moves. Um, so I guess the, the short answer to your question is that there's not a very good way for designers here to vet their designs in code until we are very far downstream, mm -hmm. which assumes that they have had the experience of, of seeing what designs do in the browser. Um, so it would be really good um, for your students to learn the, the ramifications of a digital context, whether that means that you're doing it in your class or it means that they're working with a developer who can translate their stuff and they run into something working side by side with somebody. Um, it, you know, I don't, I don't think there's an answer to how to do all the things in <laughs> class. Um, but, but as far as the, the skill set that, that we're looking for, for your students coming out of school, they would need to have a pretty strong understanding of how a design file translates to the browser without seeing it coded. Yeah, and there's an inverse to that as well with the developers that we hire. They're expected to be able to do something similar from the other angle, which is predict whether or not a design is going to present them the challenges you know, that, that it will. And if it looks like it's going to be challenging enough, we might then um, choose to spin up some time for prototyping and ask for collaboration between the designer and the developer earlier in the project than we normally would or something along those lines. If there's a scenario where we legitimately must see some behavior in a browser, typically we get multiple people involved. It's not always that way if we have a designer that um, you know, wants to take the time and, and has the time available to experiment with code in the browser, they can do that. But usually we'll bring in a, a developer for support who's most likely already attached to the project and can say, okay, you know, this part of the page, we kind of understand what it's going to do. Those things will stack the way you expect. But this part is complex and we'd like to build out a prototype to see, you know, how it will react um, to someone changing their browser size or looking at it on their phone or watch or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, and see, this is the hard part is 
how do you, you have to teach them, you have to make them aware of what they don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Saying you, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just, it, it's really hard to, to overcome that. But, you know, one thing, and I just like to ask your opinion on that just occurred for me from listening to your, your response was when I teach HTML and CSS, I teach it from a perspective of success that what if they follow these steps they are going to successfully complete something mm. i'm wondering if it would almost be better to have it be a, from a point of failure like you you know have something that you th- that they think should just work but then you know me in the back of my head is like no you're it's just not going to work like maybe give them a visual design and say here try to you know try to make it up mock it up in the browser and so they can see that oh what I design doesn't always necessarily work. Does that make yeah. sense? I think yeah. the, the biggest learning moment is if they themselves design something that doesn't translate the way they were expecting. Yeah. And, and then they have to figure out um, a solution that will achieve what they were going for, but be different than what they were originally envisioning. I think for developers, it's useful to get a design and try to implement it and see what's <laughs> That's hard about it, but for designers, it's actually the most beneficial part is being the one who designed the thing that didn't work. There's no quicker way to learn, you know, that that skill that we were just talking about of being able to think in a vacuum mm-hmm. of code than to have had a really traumatic experience <laughs> with something that you thought was going to be awesome. Um, so yeah, it. You know, for you, it's tough because it, there, there is so much to learn. There's so many things that you would need so many different kinds of classes to be happening concurrently to teach all the skills um, in one coherent semester, right? Like mm-hmm. a class about HTML and CSS, I think, is actually really great for designers and to try to implement really basic things. But in addition, you would need that class running concurrently with it that was trying to solve a design brief, right? And mm-hmm. having things that they're learning in that coding class be coming to mind as they're doing that, you know, plus the thing that you were talking about before of maybe trying to get them to get to the design brief in the first place. And those things, those things are all courses in and of themselves. Like you can't do all of those things in one class. And unfortunately, the way most curriculums are built is they're already pre-existing print design of course. Programs. And then they just, you know, cobble in one or two web design classes. And we're trying to teach all of that in these one, if we're lucky, two classes. And it's, yeah. so it's that's crazy. why, yeah, that's the point of this podcast is like, okay, I got to find the balance yeah. in the little time I have. Yeah. But thanks for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like, I think, I think that um, graphic design and design for the digital environment both have a lot of core design skills required. But as far as a trade, as far as what you are doing on the ground and the production problems that you are trying to solve creatively along with all of the concepting and all of the other things that you're doing, they're two pretty separate tracks. I mean, it's a different medium and it has different challenges. So I do find it frustrating watching academia just kind of miss the boat on 
how different these two things are. Um, you know, I went to school for, for graphic design and I learned layout and type and knowing those things is enormously helpful for the digital environment, of course. Um, but nobody taught me how to do all of the other things that I had to teach myself because at the time there was no infrastructure for that. And the state of the art is evolving so quickly, so constantly, mm -hmm. that it's very hard for academia to keep up with it. But also it's come to the point where it is a robust curriculum of its own. Um, so it's very, like, you have a very hard job is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> Thank you. And in, in this leads perfectly into the next question because, so I still think visual designers need to learn HTML and CSS because they need to understand the medium they are working on, which is a heck of a lot more complicated than understanding ink, paper, and, you know, the, the different printing processes. So from your experience, stopping short of producing the mythical unicorn, how much HTML and CSS would you like to see your, your visual designers know? And, and, you know? Can you give specifics? Yeah. Well, I think that the, what you were describing earlier from what you were spending most of your class time doing, the, the time that you were focusing on code, those are the core skills. For me, um, you know, I used to code back in the day, and at this point, everything is completely unrecognizable to me because I've been out of code for 10 years at this point. Um, but the knowledge that I had just from the early days, um, and I was of that, of that uh, wave of, of folks that transitioned from like table design to CSS, like mm -hmm. I was coding actively during that transition and a little bit after that transition. So going through the exercise of being like, wait, what are divs and what's absolute <laughs> positioning and what, what's, what is, you know, floating, like what, what are the various, you know, challenges and opportunities and just understanding like basically the grain of the web, right? Mm -hmm. Like the web wants to do certain things and it does not want to do other things. And you can work around some of those things that it doesn't want to do, but it takes enormous effort. And just having designers understand the scope of what their design is demanding is I think most of what they need to know. They need to know, you know, what is a div? How does it live in the page? What does it mean to be in flow? What does it mean to be out of the flow? You know, <laughs> what is type doing? Like, those are the basic skills. And I don't even think you have to be too advanced or fancy about it. You just need to know some of these basic things to understand. You know, like you said, with print, it's like paper has a grain. And so does the web. Um, so just understanding the grain, understanding what you're asking a developer to do, um, is going to help you plan so much better as a designer and to anticipate a lot of those things that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, would, I think that it's, it's very clear if you receive or you're working with a designer who doesn't have a conceptual understanding of various aspects of how HTML and CSS work in the form of, you know, uh, recognizing that things are typically laid out as boxes on the page and will behave as boxes on the page, that conceptual understanding gets you as far as you need to go without fully comprehending what the DOM is or the box model, <laughs> how it behaves. Uh, and I also think that um, an understanding of sort of the difference between JavaScript and CSS and, and how they're meant to be used mm -hmm. to change things visually on the page. And even 
you know, the point at which they become relevant when a page is loaded. Um, those kind of things can be really beneficial and do not require a really terribly in-depth knowledge of those things, but um, can be really helpful, if, you know, when planning how the page is actually going to behave because that's kind of the big um, bridge you got to cross when you're translating from Photoshop into the browser is suddenly this thing is jumping around and moving uh, because of some random user's interaction and we're trying to you know predict what that's going to be um, understanding some of the basics of CSS layout um, you know in the specifics of building those divs and things is very good but beyond that I think a conceptual understanding that can be provided by just you know a, a pretty basic touch of some of those other technologies can be really helpful. All right, so um, I have one final question because I've, I've taken up a, a lot of your time. So, in uh, this last one has to do with what you just kind of mentioned, some of those interactions. So, another area that I that I'm having trouble with, and I and I'm guessing everybody else's too, is micro interactions, and by that I mean animating a drop-down menu um, or a button or animating a page transition or a, a modal or an alert. Um, so, you know, basically some kind of visual, you know, clue to help improve the, the user experience. So if, if I want my, if so, if I want my students to focus on micro interactions, I'm, I'm basically have got two choices uh, from my perspective. It's either I spend an enormous amount of time teaching them actual CSS animations so they can make them and, you know, then critique them and see if they work. Or I teach them After Effects and, you know, they kind of experiment around in there to make, you know, approximations of it. So how do you handle <laughs> uh, at Fine? How do you handle that? Well, um, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. We actually have a bit of a house style on some things mm -hmm. so that there's actually less conversation around a few different types of things that over the years we've just established um, more or less of a, a standard around. Mm -hmm. So we have a way that we do modals and a way that we do drop downs and a way that we do fly out navigation and typically what designers are solving is what those look like um, more so than how they come in and the developers um, will sometimes bring a creative solution to the table during production around how it animates and then we can critique that as a group and you know sometimes suggest something different uh, based on that straw man that they've created um, so what we end up doing a lot on our side is we have a production handoff guide where we're kind of going through all the different things that a developer needs to know to hopefully be able to code the, the um, site without actually opening Photoshop. So we map out the grid of all the different design patterns that we're using and show what's happening at three major breakpoints. We... Um, define the, the type styles and what we would like to see responsibly more or less for them. We put together a color palette and try to define roughly like where those things are going to come into play. And then we have additional areas to talk through responsive image strategy and micro interactions where we're showing rollover states for things, open states for things, 
Um, and generally, we have a document that goes along with that that's a behavioral plan where we talk through um, all of the features, which include galleries and drop-downs and navigations and really any special move that is not clear from a flat design. Um, and we sometimes will just point to examples where out on the open web, you know, you, you say, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, uh, a progressive load-in like this. See, um, the hovers have this really special underline animation that's kind of like this. Um, and so it's not so much like, you know, trying to copy what's out there, but the designer will have an idea as they are, um, as they are designing and then they go out on the web being like, is there anything even remotely like what I'm envisioning that I can just kind of point to so that the developer knows what the heck I'm talking about? Um, and that tends to be our process. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't actually do a lot of, um, you know, literal prototyping in After Effects or um, expecting designers to show a developer a finished prototype that they've coded or, or any of that. Um, we just assume that, that we're going to get to that answer in conversation. And so I don't know to what degree I would focus on, um, on having designers in your class, like actually executing the things. But I think the thing that's most important is the ability to communicate mm -hmm. the things. And that is what I would focus on. And it, and it can be really like a pencil and paper sketch of something if it's communicating it, or it can be really specific narrative language with a link to a JavaScript plugin or whatever, whatever gets the point across is what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mentioned collaboration earlier, uh, and this is another one of those phases where we will put our developers and designers together. And the behavioral plan that Celie mentioned is both a record of their collaboration and occasionally it's the, the catalyst that forces that collaboration if it hasn't happened before then. And the training that we have to do to enable people to be able to use a behavioral plan or create one effectively is about both that communication that Celie mentioned and identification of what areas are likely to see these micro interactions and um, which of them, in our case specifically at Fine, which of those areas will be getting something special outside of what we would usually expect to do there if there is sort of a standard behavior. Um, you know, in our, in our experience, we've come across a lot of those that we really like. And if a designer is thinking to themselves that they want to use mostly the standard types of interactions, they probably don't need to mention them at all. And their developer will just take care of it. It doesn't mm -hmm. hurt to mention it, but, you know, generally we would do that. And then the, the real task becomes figuring out, okay, where do we want to see a bunch of neat things happen? And then maybe take a quick glance at the timeline and budget and uh, verify that, that, that we can do what we want and occasionally, you know, increase uh, the scope of what we're planning to do because of what we find in the, at those times as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's been actually, you just mentioned, that's been kind of my approach is when um, I assign the students, I'll say like, because they always, they're, they're actually very, students are really good at like, I want it to do this. They actually like intuitively 
know what kind of animations they want it to do, but they just have no way of, they have like no understanding of how to like visually prepare that. Mm -hmm. And so recently I've been just saying, you know, let's pick one, just one animation throughout this thing. And let's actually, because they, in our program, they've already had prior experience in After Effects. And I say, let's just try to mock this up in After Effects so you can, you know, visually articulate it. That's super mm -hmm. great. I yeah. mean, that's above and beyond in my view. One thing, um, if we're if we're kind of closing out this topic, yeah. one thing I do want to mention that is a skill that almost no designer has when they start out um, and that we find gets learned on the job a lot that is maybe food for thought is we use content management systems for the scale of the sites that we do. Mm -hmm. uh, both for both for the depth of content that they have and for client control over content. And one of the sort of wake-up calls um, that a lot of designers get is what that does to the design strategy <laughs> of a page. In other words, what what needs to be standardized and what can be a custom, you know, jazz hands move on, on every layout that you're producing. Um, and so that's maybe an area that's too deep for the amount of curriculum that you have control over, but it's worth mentioning because it, it is another one of those, um, scenarios where we have a lot of pain experienced, mm -hmm. like where it's kind of like what we were talking about with the grain of the web. It's like the web wants to do a certain thing and also content management systems want to do a certain kind of thing. And we use an object-oriented sort of approach to content management. So it's not, you know, a page-driven content management system. And therefore, there's a data model and you have to figure out what, <laughs> what is kosher and what isn't kosher in, in the wild variation between layouts and approaches um, as you roll out a site. Um, so that's just something to to chew on. Can you give a, a specific example? Because I've you I've built sites using WordPress, um, Magento, um, Jekyll. So can you just give me like an, a specific like one thing you? Yeah, just to kind of like articulate a little bit better for me to understand. Well, I think there's a really obvious one for us in the form of. Uh, the amount of text we would hope to see in any given area, and then the amount of text that our client uh. decides is appropriate for that area instead, because we, we, we use a proprietary CMS and we tailor it as much as we can to really try and protect the integrity of the design once it gets out into the world. And uh, a lot of the time that means, okay, this intro you know, paragraph that has slightly larger, uh, slightly larger font is actually a separate field in the CMS just to make sure that nobody makes a mistake with Markdown or something. And we're thinking they've got about three sentences worth of things to say about this product, and that's great, but then you know you hand over the site later, and unfortunately it's a page and a half right there. And mm -hmm. design has been pushed below the fold, so to speak, completely because of such a humongous intro paragraph. Uh, and in our situation, we wind up you know, immediately going into uh, damage control and trying, we, we solve that somehow. We can't just let the design fall apart out on the web. So it's uh, the entire team winds up feeling that. Yeah. And from a design perspective, another thing that, that is a very common 
pain point is, okay, um, I'm designing a product page. There's going to be a hundred products. How do I design a page that is both viable in the CMS and different sort of for each product so that there's not that level of, you know, template exhaustion for the user who's kind of going from one product to the next and going like, this all looks the same. Um, so there's kind of this creative challenge of being, of being smart about, okay, I'm providing this kind of image area, but if it's not there, then it degrades gracefully. And, um, you know, the, the kind of asset that they're going to have always is like a bottle shot, but maybe they'll also have a beauty shot for some of their products. So how do I design a page that can make use of that when they have it, but not when they don't? Um, that's a pretty common one. Or just or just even, you know, things that are on the tiniest detail level, like you're using too many type styles and no client is going to be able to, to really hold up the fidelity of that in Markdown. So you just have to take a much more um, streamlined strategy where you're doing just a couple of special moves here and there, and those are separate fields so that they're not messing it up. Like Mark said, you know, just all those kinds of things that become this kind of additional um, overhead of thinking about how it's going to live in the real world. Yeah, no, and that's that's helpful. I mean, I personally do that when I during critiques. So when they put whether it's whether it's the you know I'm looking at a mock-up in Sketch, or I'm looking at like live code because I've actually used <laughs> CMSs before. I can say, well you know, that, that headline works perfect there, but you know, somebody's going to do a two or three line headline and it's going to blow up your entire design. Exactly. And and I think that's, that's actually really easy for us to do. If you've had the experience, if you, if you've lived through it breaking. Yeah, Yeah. well, exactly. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about before, right? The the painful experience is the one you remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, again, I, I, well, before I let you go, is there anything else that you wanted to, that maybe you're personally working on or other advice you that we didn't cover? Because this has been crazy in-depth and helpful. Oh, so, good. Yeah. yeah. So if there's anything else you wanted to throw out at there, I, I would love to hear it. Or um, if there's anything you're working on. Well, I think we touched on most of the high points. Um, you know, for us, like we, we try to hire designers usually kind of in the they've been out of school for a few years already and have felt some of the pain somewhere else before they get to us kind of place. Um, and a lot of times if people are coming in at a junior level, just from like a professional development standpoint, what might be useful for your students to know is like, it's great to just try to be helpful and do whatever you can get your hands on. And, uh, improve your game outside the the studio as much as you can by taking on personal projects and really just try to see what you can learn by shadowing people and look for opportunities to do as much as you can, understanding that um, you actually don't want to um, have too rapid uh, a trajectory into more senior levels of responsibility because you can actually crash and burn (laughs) a lot faster that way. And so it's really good to just, you know, have a a slow, steady pace through this industry. I think a lot because of the speed of this industry, there's always this um, 
hunger for people to kind of get in there and do more and more and more and, and try to do like edgier and edgier and edgier, but, but really focus on core skills and being um, able to deliver stable solutions and work your way up um, and don't be afraid of like looking at the long game and, and just trying to put one foot in front of the next. Mm-hmm. Mark, did you have anything to add before I, I let you, let you go? Let you both well, go? I, I completely agree with everything Seely just said. And, um, I, I, you know, I thought that the curriculum as you described it earlier was perfect because we see, uh, a lot of, um, developers coming in these days who, uh, have a very cursory knowledge of all the fundamental systems they would need to know and have focused their past eight weeks of schooling on a brand new, untested, untried technology. And that is not a, a, you know, a very healthy um, setup. And, and those people wind up disappointed um, in their own skills, not realizing that, that you know, CSS is actually a huge subject. It's not a thing you look at and understand a little bit and then move on. <laughs> so. Especially now with Flexbox and the new grid spec that'll be <laughs> yeah. coming up soon. Oh, anyway. Flexbox. Uh, we've been loving Flexbox. <laughs> yeah, I finally ripped the Band-Aid off and said, like, no, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm, I mean, I still teach flows, but now I'm also introducing Flexbox. And it's kind of hard because I don't even fully understand it yet enough yeah, to, to teach it. But Yeah, same here. We, we, we were very reticent to, to move forward because of browser support and things like that. And we've decided just recently, okay, we're going for it. And it's been fantastic. And um, there's, you know, the one CSS tricks uh, Flexbox article. Mm-hmm. Uh, we probably hit that from our office 50 times a day. <laughs> I, I, I hit it a couple of times too. <laughs> uh, I'd love to see their analytics right now for that page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, again, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. This was amazing. And it was really really helpful so, so happy. thank you yeah thank you it's been great that's all we have time for today on part two of episode 28 of design edu today i want to thank today's guests Celie and mark for being so generous with their time i want to thank the audience for listening and i want to thank the design edu today hosting sponsor DigitalOcean and cdn sponsor fastly for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible finally I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you want to discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU today.